Oh, what a great privilege to come with you to one of the one of the most seminal passages. I know I say that every Sunday. I think it's probably because God's word is that way. Every word that you're reading is one of the most seminal passages for you that day. But but today, right here in the midst of the Easter story, we get to approach one of the one of the most profound passages in all of the New Testament where God tells us, I'm gonna stick my neck out here, where God speaks to us and tells us our purpose in life. Wow, how's that for hanging it out there? He tells us our purpose in life. I'm not talking about our calling. Our call is to the gospel, to respond to this truth that Christ has become flesh and dwelt among us, that, that Christ has come to reveal to us the way, the truth, and the life. And, and at some point, we have to respond to that calling on our life. And we understand that when we do, when we come to that point where we can risk it, and we're going to explore this together today, but where we can risk it, then, then we discover amazing, amazing relationship with the living God. I'm not talking about that call to them. I'm talking about what happens next. If that's true, that we're His, and that in this craziness that He has chosen someone like me, someone like you to, to use for His purposes, what is our next step? It, Matthew is not, is not messing around here. The author of the Gospel reading that we are, uh, that we are using this morning as we continue this Easter story, he does not mess around. He does not tell us a lot of the other details of what happened in those days immediately following Jesus' resurrection. He has a purpose, and his purpose is that we would understand what our purpose is. That he would understand, uh, that we would understand, like the disciples, what Christ's purpose for us is here today. And so we want to pick up the story today in in Matthew 28, I invite you on your phones or in, in your Bibles, or if you, if you don't have a Bible with you or a phone where you could look that up, I've just opened one of the Pew Bibles. You can find our core passage today is on page 835 uh, in the Pew Bible. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. And now, before we start, I want to ask you a, a, a quick question, maybe to kind of uh, plow up uh, the ground for us, maybe make our hearts good soil for God's Word today. Why did the Holy Spirit preserve this Scripture for us today? Why, I, uh, by faith, we believe that the Holy Spirit, not, not some council in the 4th century, not, certainly not Constantine, but the Holy Spirit is the one who put these particular 66 books of the Bible together we believe the Holy Spirit is the one that protected it with a remarkable integrity over all these thousands of years now since these words were first written down or spoken. Why did he do it? Why is the Holy Spirit preserving this scripture for us? Is it for our, our entertainment? There certainly are amazing things in this. And it, if you've not drunk deep of scripture, it's one wild ride, believe me. Is it for our entertainment? Is it, is it for our historical curiosity? That, that yeah, these things actually happen, and, and, it's, and it's fun sometimes to understand 
uh, history and what actually happened? Is it, is it for our intellectual stimulation? I have to confess, this is one of my favorite things. I, I just love when, when I start to see the pieces of this puzzle of, of God's purpose for humanity coming together. And, and it, it stimulates my brain. I want to I know more. I find myself gravitating to that. I want to know intellectually more. But is that why, really? Really, the Holy Spirit preserved these? Or, or was it so that we might know how to live? Or in some cases, how not to live? Is it, is it so that we might have life? And experience life? And I believe the words the angel gave to the two Marys last week are also God's words to us. Do you remember? Do you remember? Don't be afraid. Right? Don't be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus. Come and see. Then go and tell. And as they went, as they went, they encountered the risen Christ. So here's, here's my theory. And it's a theory. Let's, let's see if it's true or not, okay? Here's my theory. If we respond as they did then, we will have a similar experience. That's my theory. That we are disciples too. And, and that we have the same opportunity to believe and to put into practice the words of Scripture that the people who originally heard them did as well. So Matthew picks up the story with the 11 disciples. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they saw Jesus there. They worshipped him. Isn't this cool? But some doubted. We were wrestling in our Sunday school class this morning. Did some worship and some doubt? That's the way most of us, that's the narrative. It's one or the other. You cannot doubt and also worship. I don't think so. I think that some worshipped and doubted, and that seemed to be the consensus of the class this morning, that some worshipped and doubted at the same time, because we're not God. We are not there yet. We don't understand completely everything yet. Some worshipped him, but some doubted as well. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The very Word of God. Oh, thank you, God. Well, so apparently, the two Marys did what the angel said, right? Apparently, the two Marys completed Jesus' task for them. They gave the disciples the message that Christ was risen. And I just have to believe that they told a little bit of their story to you. You guys would not believe what happened to us at the tomb this morning, right? No doubt they included their personal witness. We've seen him. We've seen him. Some people in our class this morning brought out the fact that in that culture... 
the testimony of two women didn't count for anything, rightly or wrongly. That was the way of the culture there. If, if people were creating the story, as Sarah was sharing with us in our class, that they would not have done it this way, right? They would, they would have chosen credible witnesses, but, but God chose them. And God does that, doesn't He? He chooses the, the lowly. He chooses the unrecognized. He chooses the humble of heart and uses them if they are willing He uses them to move mountains, to change structures of societies, to to change human hearts. So they included their own witness and their testimony. We saw Him. We touched Him. And He invites you to meet with Him in Galilee. Now remember from last week that, that Galilee is 70 miles away. 70 miles away, and it's not as big a deal for them as it was for us. They were used to doing those kinds of journeys for three years. Someone once figured that out. It was over 3,000 miles that they walked together with Jesus during that time. The 70 miles is not small, but, but it's more than you and I are used to walking. They were to meet with Jesus in Galilee, 70 miles away. Now, we know from other biblical accounts that that Jesus had several encounters with disciples beginning the very afternoon of the resurrection, right? The two disciples on the Emmaus Road. We're told that he had a personal encounter with Jesus. It's not even written down for us anywhere. Uh, He had another personal encounter with Jesus' brother, James, that's not written down for us. He appeared to many of the disciples that Sunday night and, and then a week later to the balance of them as well. Matthew's recording none of that. Matthew's is spot on saying, I want you to understand a very simple concept here today. Um, I want you to understand what Jesus commanded them to do. And Jesus had something very special for the disciples in Galilee. Oh my goodness. John records just amazing stories of how Christ blessed them, reaffirmed them, equipped them, prepared them. But all Matthew tells us is that Jesus honored his word and met those those disciples as a result of their obedience to these two women who told them what God had done for them. They made their way to Galilee. They made their way to the place where so much insight into the kingdom of God had been given them, where so many amazing things had happened. Let's again look at that part of the story. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And again, Look what happens when they find him. They're seeing him face to face. Um, some worshipped and some doubted. And my reaction kind of is, how in the world could they have doubted? And I did appreciate, last Friday evening we uh, had a viewing of the movie Risen. And I did appreciate, the movie was, was a, a, a creative story about one of the Roman uh, officers who had charge over Jesus' situation that day. And, and while it was speculation on what happened, they did such a good job on, on portraying the thought processes as this Roman soldier had to 
to try and wrap his brain around this truth. Uh, and even sitting in the presence of Jesus, he struggled because he, his mind would not let him believe that the man that he had seen crucified just a couple days before is now sitting before him and speaking to him. And he can see the, the nail prints in his hands. He can see the spear incision in his side. And, and I love just the way they portrayed that process. Yeah, it's really easy to both believe and doubt at the same time. Some worshipped and some doubted. And, and I'm pretty confident that's, that describes us here this morning. I'm not, I'm not casting stones. I'm identifying with you. I am one of those people. There's been seasons in my life where I could not see what God was doing. Um, many of them relatively small ones, but I still doubted some of them, as I've shared with you before, not small at all. Identity changing moments like, like I'm not going to ever be able to be a father. God, I, I can accept that if that's true, but I, it's a fundamental change, God, in who I thought you made me to be. I didn't know it's self-centered, but it, it's identity forming, right? And I'm guessing that there's people like that here with me today. Am I making that up? People who are struggling and trying to find their way through this. They go, where are you in the midst of both my understanding of the reality around me and certainly my experience of the reality around me? And so I take so much comfort that it was happening right there. The, the first... 40 days of Jesus' life, it was happening right there as well. I have doubts so often. But you know, now, decades later, after decades of, of risking believing that God's Word is true, I've, I've come to realize that oftentimes my doubts were a defense mechanism. Are you ready for this? I don't know if I can explain this well. In a twisted sort of way, a defense mechanism defending Jesus. Like somehow I could somehow protect Jesus from people's doubts. Or I don't want to believe this about you, Jesus, because if I believe this about you, that you were the one who did not allow me to have those children come to full term, then, then I'm not sure that, that I can survive that. I, I'm going to have to defend you, Jesus, by, by somehow doubting instead. I know I'm not making sense. But I'm guessing that there's other people that do that as well. You doubt because you're afraid of the reality that you'll have to face if indeed God does do those things. If indeed, as he says in Jeremiah, I do cause disaster. Uh, that, that God does cause suffering for his sovereign purposes. Wow, that's more than my mind. I feel like my brain's about to explode right now. Um, but I oftentimes find myself trying to protect God from, from people's doubts. But honestly, honestly, most of the time, I'm not really trying to protect God from my doubts. My doubts are a defense mechanism for myself. If I believe this to be true, if I believe even the resurrection story yesterday, or excuse me, last week, to be true, then my life would have to change, right? If it's true, then I can't keep living as I've been living with me at the center of my life, with me on the throne of my life. I, my life would have to change. 
So we know from the other biblical accounts that Jesus appeared off and on to the disciples for 40 days. Ultimately, He ascended in their presence to be with the Father. And then 10 days later, we're going to get to walk through this season over the next few weeks together. 10 days later, sent the promised Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But Matthew records none of that. Matthew only records one relatively small statement of Jesus to the disciples who, who risked believing the women and, and showed up in Galilee. And, and even then, they worshipped some of them and, and there was doubt mixed in with them. Of all the many things Jesus said and did, Following the resurrection, this, Matthew says, this is what he wanted them. And I believe us, this is what he wanted them to remember. What is it that he wants us to remember one week after the seminal events of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority. Will you say that? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. To me. The disciples had a personal experience with the power that a person could wield, right? They'd watched as no less than three powerful figures had put Jesus on trial. Caiaphas, the high priest, the, the religiously powerful one. Pilate, the one who could speak life and death over anyone in all Jerusalem. Ultimately, Herod there, really. Uh, um, Jesus was passed on by Pilate to Herod. And, and in the background is Caesar, the great weight of the Roman Empire. But you know, I'm, I'm thinking that those weren't the toughest ones. I'm thinking that the greatest test, trial of all was, was the court of human opinion. Remember the very people that had said, you know, Hosanna, save us, son of David. The very people who uh, four days before, three days before, had, had, had cried out for Jesus to be the Messiah. They were then the ones who cried, crucify him and sentenced him to death on the cross. But here, here, as Jesus, often silent before positional power like that, summarized his own power. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, if, if that's true, if Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, then what does that mean is not under his authority, right? That pretty much covers it. All authority in heaven and earth, right? He's got this. He says, I'm Lord over everything. I have authority over heaven and earth. He had died on the cross, rose from the grave, conquered death, sin, and the grave, and therefore was Lord over everything. And last week we kind of unpacked a little bit. Do you remember what that meant? I'm sorry these aren't in your notes, but if you don't have your notes from last week, you're welcome to write these down. Jesus is Lord over life and death, right? He proved that by overcoming the power of the grave. He broke the power of death over life. He is Lord over those things. We saw last week that Jesus is Lord over sin and brokenness and Satan, right? That Jesus is Lord over sin and the great adversary who's opposed to the th- excuse me, the things of God. And we saw 
last week powerfully that, that if that's true, then Jesus is Lord over you and me. I think this means a couple of things. Number one, write this down, would you? He is Lord of our lives. He is Lord of the lives of everyone in this room this morning. I shared with you, I think last week, that, that I'm always amazed when people come and, and, and say to me, Dave, I've decided to make Jesus Lord of my life. Now, I understand what they mean, and I, I celebrate that in a way, right? But do you hear what they're saying? I've decided that Jesus is Lord of my life. Oh, I can't, I'm going to sound sarcastic. I can't stop it. Here it comes. Congratulations. He is Lord over your life. He's Lord over all of heaven and earth. I don't mean to be facetious because it's a wonderful thing that, that, that finally has dawned on you. But whether it dawned on you or not, it still is the reality. Amen? If He's Lord over everything in heaven and earth, He's Lord over your life, whether you recognize that or not. And Paul said in Philippians, one day every knee will bow. One day every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father, right? Every single one of us will one day bow our knee and call Jesus Lord. Everybody you know will one day bow the knee and call Jesus Lord. That's not the question. The question is not whether every knee will bow. It will. The question is when will it bow, right? Will we do it now? Or will we do it when it's no longer by faith, but by sight? And when it's by sight, it's too late. So the question is not, is he Lord of our lives? He is Lord of our lives. The question is, have we submitted our lives to his lordship? That's what I invited you to wrestle with last week. Have you submitted your life to his lordship? What does that mean? Basically, it means that we have surrendered every right to determine the direction of our lives. We could tell stories. Amen? We could tell stories of how we thought our lives were going to go there, right? And they went there. I thought that my life was going to be about, about being an engineer, an engineering geologist. And I was pretty excited about that. Spent quite a bit of time and money kind of pursuing that God had already shown me a different direction, but I couldn't comprehend it. All I could, all I could think was, I'm going to be a garage band trumpeter the rest of my life. And um, I didn't trust him. Uh, every single one of us could tell stories like that, of how we thought our life was going to go one way and it went another But here's the deal. If we have entrusted our life to Jesus, then we have surrendered every right to determine the direction of our lives. Yikes. I mean, this is is not rocket science. That's what it means that we surrender to the total authority and lordship of Jesus Christ. We've surrendered every right to determine the direction of our life. If He is Lord, then we have placed our faith in Him. We've trusted Him to save us from our sins and we no longer call the shots in our lives. Right? I want to speak as frankly as I can with you. Men, women, you don't call the shots in your family anymore. 
well, well, I'm not sure. I mean, I want Jesus as my Lord, but I, well, is He your Lord or not? If He's Lord, then Jesus is calling the shots for your family. You don't call the shots with what you do. You don't call the shots with your career, right? You don't call the shots with your ambitions. It's not about what you desire anymore. Christ is calling the shots. You've surrendered your right to determine the direction of your life. Students. Students, you have some great dreams and plans, do you not? And we celebrate that with them. This season of your life is that season where you, you compare your dreams with His dream for you. This is a, a season where you prepare for the rest of your life, but you trust the rest of your life to your Lord and Savior, right? Where you go to school, what you're going to study, what you're going to do with your life, all those things are up to Christ if He's calling the shots. He partners with you. You're second in command, right? Remember the bumper sticker, Christ is my co-pilot? No, He's your pilot. You're the co-pilot, right? If He's, if he's the co-pilot, you're going to hit a tree, right? You've surrendered the right to determine the direction of your life. What about for us as a church? What about for us as all of that community church, right? It's not in our hands. It's in the hands of the one who has authority over this church. Jesus is Lord of our lives. And this is going to be huge, right? But that's nothing. That's nothing compared to what happens next. Jesus is saying also, He's not only Lord of our lives, but He's Lord over the nations. He is Lord over the nations. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And what I want you to see in the Scripture this morning is how that had been prophesied from, from, from the Old Testament all the way to Revelation in the New Testament. Would you keep your thumb or your whatever you do in a phone uh, in the in the Matthew 28, because we're going to come back to that in just a second. But will you slide over to the book of Daniel with me for just a second? The book of Daniel. Daniel um, lived 600 years before the time of Christ. I'm just astounded when I think of Isaiah, maybe uh, the 8th century before Jesus, and, and, and Jeremiah, Daniel. These prophets lived hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. And what we're going to read from Daniel chapter 7 is, is what we call prophecy. It's foretelling the Word of God. Sometimes that has ramifications for the future, as it did in Daniel's case. Sometimes it has ramifications for the present. But this is a word that foretells something in the future. Daniel 7, look at verses 13 and 14. Listen to what Daniel saw in this prophetic vision. If you have a Bible, even underline it, right? Think about how it relates to what we're talking about in Matthew 28. Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there was before me one like the Son of Man. I'm reading from the NIV, not the ESV. You can circle that phrase right now, the Son of Man. I saw one like the Son of Man. That was Jesus that term that he adopted from Daniel, this God-man, this person who is completely human, yet of heavenly origin, this Son of Man, is exactly who the Christ is. 
I saw in the night visions. Behold, the clouds of heaven. There came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. Help me, who is that? Ancient of Days? God the Father, right? He came to God the Father and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, to Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. Never pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. They're talking about the authority of Jesus. They're talking about the one who is to come. He's going to have all authority. And they throw a bunch of extra words in there. Sovereign, power, dominion. All peoples, all nations, all ethnos, all people groups are going to worship him as Lord. Daniel said that 600 years before the time of Christ. Now jump with me, if you would keep your finger in Matthew 28. Jump with me to Revelation 7. This was from, from our Palm Sunday passage, right? Revelations chapter 7. This is talking about where eternity is heading. This is the back of the book. This is what it's going to look like when everything is consummated. The last book of the Bible, Revelations chapter 7, starting with verse 9. I looked and there was before me a great multitude that no one can count, right? And here it is. From every nation, tribe, people, and language. That sounds exactly like Daniel 7, doesn't it? Standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. Remember this on Palm Sunday? They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out and we cried out in song in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb and all the angels who are standing around the throne and all the elders and the four mysterious living creatures, they fell down on their face before the throne. They worshiped God saying, Amen, let it be. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Do you remember singing that? Be to our God forever and ever. There is, there is a Lord and Savior foretold from the beginning of time, consummated at the end of time. But there's also a pattern. There's also, there's power, yes, but there's also a pattern for us. And he tells us exactly, we're going to get to unpack this over the next couple of weeks. Um, he tells us exactly how it's going to play out. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Who are the least, at that moment in time, who are the least powerful people in all of Israel? Probably the followers of Jesus. They had cut off the head. They were actively seeking and would, till this very day, actively seeking to destroy the people of God. And what did Jesus commission them to do? Make disciples. In other words, make more people like themselves. We've done this before. Let me do it just briefly. What is a disciple? Two, two streams come to us from the Greek understanding of it. The first is one who follows Jesus. So when Jesus would say, follow me, and someone would say, okay, I've got nothing better to do, and begin to follow him, and to a certain extent, they were, they were a disciple. They were following him. 
But you could not be around Jesus with, for very long before you started to realize that he's absolutely turning everything you thought you knew about God upside down. So a disciple is also one who learns from God. And there is a Greek word that's translated disciple that means a learner, one who learns from God. I've shared with you many times one of my favorite ones is, is the last one, the Hebrew understanding of what a disciple is. And this is played out in street corners throughout the world even today. And you see a Jew making his way to, to um, a Shabbat service, uh, to the synagogue. They dress differently according to how their, how their rabbi dresses. They look like their rabbis. You can tell which synagogue they go to by the way they dress. They want to be like their master. And a disciple is one who is like their master, not in the sense of what they wear, but in the sense of who they have become. So the pattern is for those who say they follow Jesus to invite other followers. For those who would learn from God to create in others both a hunger and the ability to learn from God until all of us have been transformed into the image of Jesus. But again, look at who he entrusted this critical task. There were educated people in Jesus' day. There were more religious people in Jesus' day. There certainly were powerful leaders in Jesus' day, just as there are in ours, right? But he entrusted his kingdom to none of them. Hear this. He entrusted his kingdom to none of them. He entrusted his kingdom to you. To you. And then... So how are you doing? How are you doing? There's no judgment or condemnation here. There's none at all. This is, this is not the time of judgment. That day will come. Like a thief in the night, this is not the day. This is the day of invitation. Is he Lord of your life? What are you doing with his purpose for you? What are you doing with this great commission? Let me ask you, because probably in some of our minds we're saying, well, how do I know when I've made a disciple, right? Um, we're trying to work really hard as elders to understand so that we can give you a, a, a pattern and, and know when that has been completed. And this is where we're landing. In our discipleship triads, that I would also, I would, excuse me, often draw the, the parallel with human development. How do you know when a human, this is going to scare you to death here in a minute, how do you know when a human is mature? Right? Physically. How do you know when they're physically mature? It's a little scary, but the answer is probably something like this. A human is physically mature when they're able to make babies, right? They may not be emotionally mature. We got some spectacular uh, examples, right? Uh, They may not be spiritually mature, but they're physically mature when they're able to make babies. I know this analogy breaks down at some point, but, but it's true for us spiritually as well. We are spiritually mature when we're able to make spiritual babies, when we're able to make disciples. So hear this real quickly. It's going gonna, it's gonna to guide us the next couple of weeks. A disciple is made when he or she is able to make disciples, when the one whom you have poured your life into does the same. So the pattern that Jesus gave this ragtag group of followers is this. Make disciples who will make disciples, right? Make disciples who will make disciples. 
Sounds like a Ponzi scheme, but it's not. Because the end result is not financial wealth, but eternal life, right? Um, make disciples who will make disciples. And about now, many of us, if not some of us, are thinking, I'm not even sure that I am a disciple, much less that I could possibly make one. Don't worry. You are not alone. We're all in that same place. But that was what makes this last promise of Jesus so beautiful. There is a promise. Surely I will be with you. Help me. Surely I will be with you to the very end of the age, right? Just about the time we're going to panic and write ourselves off and say, I guess I'm not uh, worthy enough to do this. Jesus gives us the key to this whole enterprise, to this whole commission. The one with power and the pattern promises his presence. I'm sorry for all the peas. I cannot stop myself from saying porky pig right now. I just got on a roll with peace for a second. But the one with power, all authority in heaven and earth, the one with the pattern, has now promised us his presence. Do you understand what this means? We don't have to make disciples who will make disciples. He will do it through us. We just have to surrender to his lordship. Lord, do it through me. I want to partner with you, Jesus. Do it through me. He will do it through us. We don't have to do miracles, right? Oh, we'll see miracles. He will do those miracles through us. We don't have to be eloquent of tongue or persuasive of speech, right? He will give us the words to say. He will grant us ears to hear. Jesus changes lives. Say that with me, would you? Jesus changes lives. Not us. But we have to be willing to respond to what he says. Now the two Marys could have chosen not to respond to Jesus. Oh, he still would have accomplished his mission. It's just that they wouldn't have experienced the joy of having Christ work through them. The disciples could have chosen not to respond to Jesus. In no way am I walking that 70 miles to Galilee. They could have chosen that, right? And probably in the extended group, some of them did. We know that the 11 chose to come, even in their doubts. But the ones who respond to Jesus' commission experience the presence and the power of Jesus in ways that forever change them. And honestly, change those of us who have believed because of the word of their testimony. We are those women to the world. We are those 11 to the world. And the world will never be the same. So here's the deal. Jesus is still speaking. He's still speaking through his word. What is he saying to you? To you. And don't sweat it if you say, uh-oh, I wish I'd been thinking along that. We'll help you over the next couple of weeks. We'll help you explore this. Say, how can my life respond to this 
But it's important every time He speaks for you to respond. So what will you do today? It may be as simple as saying, I'm going to dig a little deeper into these four verses, five verses, 16 through 20. I'm going to dig a, a little deeper. No, many of us are... are yeah, I mean, that's good. But many of us, God has already led us. He's already said, there's someone I want you to pour your life into. I want you to risk living authentically Christian lives before this person and when the time comes to share your faith. I can't put words into your mouth. I do know that you have to ask God, what does this mean for me? What will I do? And the question we always ask is, if you believe this to be true, that the Great Commission is true, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus and now He says, now I want you to go and make disciples of all the nations. If you believe that to be true, what will you do as a result? When will you do it? And what, I'm, I'm going to put a twist on it today, what non-believer will you tell what you're going to do? Will you tell what you learn? And that's the twist, isn't it? Because I've challenged you to tell someone before, right? And we tend to go to all the people who already affirm us exactly where we are. But the way the kingdom is going to advance is not if you go to believers and tell them that. If you go to non-believers, Mike, God just plopped you in the midst of a whole new mission field, right? I know that's going to be overwhelming. The power curve, or the learning curve is going to be overwhelming as, as God answers to your prayers. And now you've got to live that thing out, right? Um, every single one of us, Mike, is in that same situation. Every single one of us has to say, what would this look like in my life? But look to the non-believers, not to the believers uh, well, I better get my act together. Well, that might be true. I live authentically Christian lives before the world. And we're going to believe that God's Word will be true to you. All power and authority, come on up, worship team, in heaven and on earth has been given now to you. You are the hands and feet of Jesus. He's entrusted all of this to you. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, crying out for you, praying. The Holy Spirit is interceding for you with groans too deep for words. He's crying out for you. They're saying, oh God, give them the courage. Give them the strength. Let them respond to this great commission. Jesus is inviting you to be His hands and feet today. Pray with me, would you? Oh, thank you. This would be overwhelming to us, Jesus. If it were not for the words that you gave your disciples, if it were not for the reality and the truth that you don't ask us to do this alone, you promise to us that, that you will be with us. That, Jesus, you will do these miracles through us. You will, will heal us. You will make us whole and out of that wholeness allow us to influence others for eternity. Oh God, we confess that we're not always aware um, that you're with us. In fact, many times we, we block you out. Forgive us, Jesus. Allow us to experience your presence even here, right now. Let us hear your words from, from Scripture as your words to us today. Jesus, draw near to us even as we draw near to you. Amen.